Hello and welcome to another week of MLS Gone Wild. Thank you for joining us for this week. We have uh, we have some big news ahead for us, in case you guys didn't know. I'm sure Blem will love to talk about that coming up, so Blem, take it away. Yeah, what's up, y'all? Happy, happy week six of MLS Gone Wild. We had a big week here for MLS Gone Wild. Week five, we had the privilege of interviewing for Madison FC's own Brandon Eaton. Following that, um, after that episode, we've actually, because of that episode and because of Brandon's outreach and his, uh, the people that he follows, uh, we have reached our highest number of listens for a single episode. As of right now, we have 69. Uh, so that's at least, I think it's 11 higher than any of our episodes prior to. So thank you to all of our listeners that are dedicating whether that be 15 minutes, 30 minutes, or the whole episode to listening to us talk about MLS. We appreciate that number mark. And then after that, thank you to Mate Popkadze, one of our lifelong friends. He just created us our first official logo. We've had a couple unofficial logos, nothing that would really draw a lot of viewers' attention, but now we have our own personalized logo. We have our old high school's colors in there. There's three stars above the logo that signify the three co-hosts. So, again, special shout-out to Mate for doing that for us. I don't think any of us have gotten our four Madison FC scarves that we've ordered yet, but I know they're in transit. Yeah, we haven't gotten them yet. But I just want to thank Mate again for that Smack-a-Lackin' logo. It's fire for sure. That Smack-a-Lackin' logo. Smack-a-Lackin', there it is. That's a poop is saying if I've ever heard one. I love it. Yeah, so Dakota, you got anything? No. Uh, before we get started? Uh, just some crazy news. I don't know if you guys saw it, but uh, Real Salt Lake were the first club in the MLS to cut um, employees due to this whole coronavirus um, situation. So that was crazy to see. That is that is crazy. Um, hopefully, I know in other leagues, players are taking pay cuts and, um, you know, coaching staff are taking pay cuts to pay those, uh, those staff that are either being let go or uh, their jobs are being put on halt. So hopefully some of the MLS teams start to take suit of that. Um, but yeah, so here we are week six. First thing we're going to get started with is, you know, we're 25 years into the MLS history. We've had a lot of great coaches in the MLS. So each of us are going to, give our audience we're going to tell you guys who the best coach in the mls history is and why but before we do that we're i have a question to pose to uh dakota and poopus so before we tell you guys who our favorite or who the best coaches are in mls history here's the question to keep in mind for poopus and dakota and also for our viewers what makes a good coach and this is on all levels any sport is it the wins? Is it developing players? Is it developing coaches? Is it something else? Or is it a combination of those things I listed? Yeah, I think it's a combination of everything that kind of goes into the job. Um, it, it comes down to wins. It comes down to trophies. I feel like those are the two that a lot of outsiders look on, look in on. And those are their biggest determining factors, whether, oh, he's got the trophies, he doesn't. This guy's ahead of this guy, but I think it all comes down. I think a lot of it comes down to just a mixture of everything along with working and being successful with what you have. Um, especially when you do have the players, a uh, league like the MLS, where not every market is the same size. So I think if you're succeeding with a smaller market club and getting the wins and having the same wins as somebody who's in a big market, I feel like that holds a certain value to your credentials and to your resume when it comes down to it. I agree with Dakota on the combination stuff. But even before the wins, I was like, you want your coaches to be on the same side as you and you want your players to actually work, be able to work together and combine as a team. So I feel like even before that, like winning the trophies, to combine at the level they, you want them to, and when your coaches don't understand the like the material, you pretty much want to teach them to give to the players. That way, your whole entire team works together as a whole. 
Yeah, I agree with what both of you are saying, but I think that it's a combination of all three. Uh, to be a really good coach, first and foremost, you have to win. Winning drives the ship. If you don't win, you're not going to have a job, and that's just the harsh reality of not only soccer but sports in general, uh, and especially in the bigger market teams, the teams that are always on TV. If you don't win, you're going to be out. There's going to be pressure put on by the fans and what have you. So first and foremost, you have to win. But also you have to develop players. We've talked about the developmental academies within the MLS. And that's their incentive to bring these younger players into the MLS teams so the MLS teams can develop them. So I believe the MLS coaches have a responsibility to develop these players. And also they have a responsibility to develop coaches, which developing players and developing coaches will only help the league uh, expand and produce a better product in the future. So I think it's a combination of the three and not just in the MLS, but I think that's, you know, Dakota, whether that's in division three or no, no matter what level it is, you want to develop the assistant coaches that are helping you. But first and foremost, you want to develop the players. You want to shape them into a player that can take them into the next level. But first and foremost, you got to come in. You got to win ball games because it's been proven in sports history. If you don't win early, they're not going to give you a chance to win late. So, and I mean, there's, I mean, there's been some coaches where they even coached the whole season. They've been let go because of that. So, yeah, yeah. There's certain positions that have more pressure on them, and, uh, and especially in big market teams, give that a you know, the LA teams, Seattle, the bigger teams in the league. If you don't win right away. Uh, you're going to have some questions to answer from the front office and the people providing the, the money to support that team. So if you guys don't have anything else to add to that, I will open up the floor to you guys to give me your best MLS coaches and MLS history. Um, so we kind of discussed this earlier, but uh, kind of all day, but we were going through these and kind of discussing them with each other, giving each other little hints. And it's actually funny because me and Poopis – Came up with the same person. It always seems like me and Poofus have pretty much the same notes, same topics. That's crazy. Man. I don't even know how that happened. <laughs> it's weird, but uh, me, I picked, and along with Poofus, Poofus might have different reasons than me, but I picked Peter Vermees from Sporting Kansas City. Man, I just asked y'all that like 30 minutes ago, and y'all lied to my face. Hey, we're holding it in until we actually uh, record the episode. We had to keep you on your toes about who, because it was driving you insane trying to figure out who we had. It was kind of funny. Okay, well, I got my notes on him too, so go ahead. Um, yeah, so I picked Peter because the guy, I feel like he has succeeded quite a bit. Um, with what he has at Sporting Kansas City, um, one MLS Cup, three domestics. He's been coaching there since 2009, um, but he was actually the sporting director starting in 2007, so two years prior to his um, hiring as the head coach midway through the 2009 season. Um, he was actually working there as well. Um He's made the playoffs every year that he has coached except one. Um, he didn't make the playoffs in 2010, his second, his first full season at Sporting Kansas City. But ever since then, he's made the playoffs, um, which is pretty impressive for a team like Sporting Kansas City. Um, especially when Sporting Kansas City, you think of Sporting Kansas City and they're not a big market club. They're actually one of those small market clubs. Um Many people might not believe that, but when it comes to buying players, money they have available and stuff like that, it's definitely a smaller market club compared to the L.A.s and the Seattle's and even Miami now, um, which I'll let Poopis touch on in a little bit. Um, uh, let Poopis talk about that. Um, he's only had three losing seasons since – 2010. Um, I'm not, I'm kind of giving him leeway on his first year. He came in, he got hired at the end of 2009. Um, he only got to manage 12 games with the club. Um, but since 2010, he's only had three losing seasons, which is really impressive. Um, he's done really good in the Open Cup. 
He actually has a really good open cup record at 27 and three or 20 wins, seven draws, three losses. Um, and then he also has a winning record within the CONCACAF Champions League as well. Uh, yeah, Dakota, they have – so it looks like they've – Kansas City under for me. So they've won three U.S. Open yeah, Cups, 2012, 2015, 2015 yeah, 2017. Correct. And yeah. then one MLS Cup. That was in 2000 – 2013. Yeah. Yeah, against yeah. Real Felt Lake. Yeah, so, I mean, he has a good res- resume. He's the longest tenured um, cl- uh, coach within the MLS currently. He holds a winning MLS – Winning percentage of 41%. Um, holds an overall percentage of 42, which is not bad. It's almost at 50. Um, but Poopus, you can kind of touch on the things that I didn't talk about, considering we have kind of the same thing. Yeah, so like uh, Dakota was talking about, like, so the way the way Ramiz puts his team is he wants to build it from the ground up, which is, which is smart because he wants to do his own style. So and then like this, I came I came across this. So he was saying like how uh, Inter Inter Miami spent twenty three million dollars on two transfers even before they started playing, and I was I was looking at this and Vermees, he he even said he said he doesn't even spend over four million dollars in transfer fees on a player. So if that tells you anything, because he likes to give, he's like uh, he's big on his academy teams too. So he likes to give. Uh, younger players and people that don't really see a lot of a lot of talent in somebody, he likes to give them chances and build them up. That way, like later on, maybe you can they can get like a lot of transfer money for players. So he likes doing it that way. But I mean, like Dakota, like we picked the same person. I real like I feel like he's a good good fit for a good MLS coach and like one of the best MLS coaches that there is around. Yeah, he was also. I don't no, know if you guys uh, remember it, but he was also one of the hot takes to become the next MLS or next U.S. men's national team coach before Burhalter got hired as well. He was one that everybody seemed to want. He was the fan favorite and the coach favorite, but the USSF decided to go with Burhalter instead. And, like, he even played on the U.S. men's national team in 1990 in the uh, World Cup in Italy. So, and he, he was part of the – he was even part of the Wizards' uh, uh, win in the MLS Cup in uh, 2000. So and then he got inducted in the Hall of Fame for as a player in 2013. So he's been he's been around the Kansas City system even when they were called the Wizards, and he just he found like then he was uh, I forget what it was, but he got offered a job to be L- LA Galaxy's vice, vice president, president. Mm-hmm. yeah, vice president of soccer operations, and to be the GM of Galaxy. And he turned it down because he wanted to stay because he knew he was he had something to something to like something to, a team to build that he the way he wanted it, and that's that's why. He's, pretty much one of the greatest, like, I think, and what Dakota thinks right now. Yeah, he's loyal to the city of Kansas City and to the soccer uh, culture in Kansas City. And so, Poopus, you just talked about how you know, he played for Kansas City. He won – did you say he won a title yeah, in no, 2000. City? And he won Defender of the Year in 2000 also. Okay, so Peter Vermees is the only person to win the MLS Cup as a player and a coach with the same team. So I think that's a remarkable stat line as well. And speaking on his loyalty, I also have another stat here. He's the all-time leader in games coach for one MLS team. And standing as of right now, that's 418 games with Kansas City. And then, I mean, that, that it, for him to turn down the LA Galaxy like lead role, for him, for him to do that as a technical director at the time for Kansas City, that says something. That says something. He cares about the city, so he wants the best for Kansas City. I I respect your guys' decision to pick Peter Vermees, and I think that we should probably mention Peter Vermees on Twitter and let him know and let him know to listen to this because this man's getting hella credit right now. Not that he shouldn't, but he uh, – He's been. He's gonna be mentioned up there with some of the greats. Right. I mean, well, he's under. He's under working the soccer. You don't hear too much about him, but he's a. From what I've like studied and like read, he's he's a damn good coach. That's for sure. Yeah, that is for sure. So, for me, so I asked the question: What makes a good coach? Is it wins? Is it player development? Is it coach development? The coach that I'm going to select is probably the grandfather, not the grandfather, but one of the grandfathers of U.S. soccer, 
somebody that really shaped the league the way that it is today. That's going to be Bruce Arena for me. Uh, so speaking on what makes a good coach is it wins. So for him winning, he was a three-time coach of the year in the MLS. He won three supporter shields. He won five MLS Cup titles. He won five NCAA titles at UVA. Then he took Team USA to the quarterfinals in, in the 2002 World Cup. Um, when he was at UVA, UVA had only played one NCAA tournament game before he got there. After he got there, they went on to win five NCAA titles and make 16 NCAA appearances in 18 years. Okay, so he came into that program and turned that program around. And that's collegiately, so that's not even speaking. I was going to say, how are we comparing so, his collegiate success to the MLS success when it's a totally different ballgame? <laughs> so just I'm, I'm, I'm shaping it as that he came in and turned a, not turned a program around. He turned that program around, but right after he coached at UVA, he came in to coach at D.C. United. And in his first three seasons after D.C. United was, you know, became an MLS team. They won two MLS titles, a U.S. Cup, a uh, Supporter Shield, and a CONCACAF Champions Cup. Um, so whether that's coming into a program or turning it around or coming into a program and starting it from the ground up, he has that ability to win in whatever kind of environment that he's put in. Um, so that's just to speak on the wins. And I will kind of combine player development, player development and coach development into one. So he has – so players that he has coached in his time that are now MLS coaches, not saying that he has everything to do with this, but just seeing as the way he shaped Bob Bradley, and I'll get into that in a minute, he has a lot of you – know, he deserves a lot of credit for these players, like Greg Berhalter, who's now the U.S. men's national team coach, Jesse March, Pablo Mastroni, and Greg Vanny, who's the head coach of Toronto FC. He coached all those players. They're all now current coaches, not only in the MLS, but national teams and teams across the globe. Um, but this past week, they were showing the MLS, you know, classic games, MLS 25 years, MLS back in 96, whatever. Um, but Bob Bradley, he was his D.C. United assistant. And now Bob Bradley has been one of the most prolific coaches in MLS history. He has won Coach of the Year in 1998 when he was the expansion coach for Chicago, and they won the MLS Cup in their first year. And then in 2006, when he joined Chivas, and in their second season, they completely changed their season around and went from 4-22-6 to go to 10-9-13 and came in third place in the West. And then he won, um, he won the Supporter Shield and Coach of the Year in 2019. So Bruce Arena, if you look at his coaching tree, his coaching tree spreads across not only the MLS, but – across the world for a lot of those names that I've already said. And so for that, not only for his background and his amount of wins and what he's won, I think that he has influenced the game of soccer in a way that nobody else in this country has done. Yeah, I just – it's it's difficult to me. I hold some value to the whole big market, small market thing because it's easy to win when you can get the best players in the world. It's harder to win when – you have to face those best players in the world with kind of bargain players or players that you can get cheaper. So it's just tough. I mean, you look at Bruce Arena, coached in New York at Red Bull, he coached at LA. Those are two very big market teams, and DC is a big market team, and they can get players that other players can't get. So, again, it's easier to coach if you have the best players. You just kind of – it's not easy, but it's not as difficult as having, say, like a lesser, like not being able to pay the best players in the world. So then let me ask you this. So I asked the opening question, what makes a good coach is it wins, player development or coach development? For you, is it winning with what you got? Is that what makes a good coach? Yeah, I think that's what it is because it's you require longer days in the office trying to build up um, tactical plans and stuff like that. I mean, how much work as a coach do you do tactically or kind of if you know you have uh, an advantage in almost every position, but when you're playing as an underdog, it takes a lot more detailed. And then to be able to continuously win – as those smaller market teams, I think it just, to me, it holds somewhat of a bigger value than 
be in, in big markets. I would I would love to see Bruce Arena in like a smaller market team to see what he can do with lesser like players or less money where he can't just go out and buy the best player in the world if he needs someone in that position. Like I'm not saying that's like the only value to it or the only like big height or like asterisk next to it, but I feel like to me it holds somewhat of a bigger somewhat of a value that like other coaches don't. I can I can see that whole side of the story too. Uh, but I definitely think that he holds a stake in the history of not only the MLS, but American soccer as, as oh, we absolutely. know it. absolutely, and I'm not arguing that at all. I definitely think he's one of the greatest, and he'll obviously go down as one of the greatest. Great Poopas, you got any thoughts on the Bruce Arena no, case? I, mean, I, I kind of agree with the code, because, I mean, look, you look at the Galaxy right now, look how, I mean, obviously, it's just season suspended but look how they're struggling like they don't they don't have the right gameplay and they have like the top players but and they spend the money for it so i mean it's all i don't know it's all based on how you want to coach your team and stuff like that so yeah so i just looked back i didn't pay any attention to it earlier but mike delaney sent me a text shout out to mike delaney i know you'll be listening at some point this week uh he asked he didn't ask me, but indirectly he asked me, is Bruce Arena the most decorated coach or is he the best coach? Exactly. And I think that's a, that's a question that you have to ask yourself. Um, but it, it, at the same time, sometimes wins and titles outweigh everything else when you look at it sometimes. And, and, and for me, that's kind of my perspective. I don't disagree with you guys that smaller market teams, the coaches that lead those teams should get more credit. I don't disagree with you, but when somebody has won this much on this kind of scale and has this kind of coaching tree around him, I just can't ignore it. Yeah. The coaching tree thing is incredible. That's wild to see. I, I mean, we looked at the same article um, and to see all the coaches that, now coaches that he's either coached or coached with is pretty outrageous. And it's definitely somebody you want as a reference or somebody to really put a word in for you. Yep. I agree. Uh, so that was fun, boys. That was fun. I did not expect you guys to tell me Peter Vermees, but again, like I said, we should probably shout, we should probably shout him out when we post this and let him give this a listen because he'll be super proud. Uh, that's that's pretty cool for him. I don't I don't know how many times he gets the amount of love that he should get, but yeah, he's definitely got he a very the, bright future ahead of him within both U.S. I think he can really pull for that U.S. job if it ever comes open again, especially with more experience and then just within the MLS or even further in Europe if he ever decides to go to Europe. Yeah, uh, did any of you guys did you guys consider Siggy Schmidt? I did, but I felt like. I mean, everybody knows Siggy Smith. Like, he's hands down, like, honestly, like, another, like, one of the greatest that there, like, has ever coached. So, I mean, he took the – I mean, look at, like, 2007. He coached, like, I'm pretty sure he, when he coached the crew in 2007, uh, like, he didn't have a team. And then when he came down to 2008, he, like, they killed it. He put the right team together to win that cup for him. So. Mm-hmm. So, one of the – so before we just go on to our next topics, I think one of the coolest stories that I read about Siggy, you know, recipe Siggy Schmidt, thank you for bringing Columbus a title in 2008. Um, that doesn't even do justice to telling it, you know, explaining how good of a coach he was. But he was the coach of the U-20 World Cup team. I forget what year it was, but the USA U-20 men's national team beat a, an Argentina team with Lionel Messi on a team 1-0. to and he matched Benny Fellhaber up with Messi one-on-one the whole game. Benny, you're not going anywhere else other than Lionel Messi, and they beat them 1-0. to zero. Uh, I think that is just a remarkable strategy, and not a lot of teams do that. Nobody does that now, but to think about doing that and beating a team with a player of that caliber just by a simple tactical switch, I think that's, that's one of my favorite stories I read when doing all this research about him. So we'll go ahead and – uh, switch into our fun segment of this week. Shout out to Extra Time for giving us this idea. Basically, we're all going to create our own expansion team. We're going to select a city, whether that be a random city or a city that already has a USL or some kind of professional level soccer team in it. 
we're going to select two players, whether they're DPs or just regular MLS players to build our teams around. We're going to select the team colors and we're going to give you guys kind of a justification about why we're selecting this team and trying to sell them so that they can become an expansion team. Um, so who wants to go first? Poopus, Dakota, who wants to go? Yeah, I'll go. Um, so I picked, I actually picked a team, a city that has a USL team already. They've bid for, they have bidded in the past for a spot within the MLS expansion. Um, they've gotten, they haven't gotten it yet. Um, but I think it's coming, especially after a couple years with the USL team. Um, but I'm going with uh, Las Vegas. Um, I named the team Vegas FC. Colors are black and gold to kind of go with the theme of the Knights and the uh, Raiders that are soon to come. I know the Raiders are black and white, but close. Um, couple things I so my two players I picked were um Michael Bradley and Carlos Vela did you pick the same two (laughs) okay well yeah I went with it's all good (laughs) (laughs) you two are ridiculous ridiculous. it's it's like it's like Uh, y'all trying to team up on me yeah so I went with so I went with Vela because he can – he's kind of a very versatile forward. I want my team to be mainly in, like, a 4-3-3 attacking type of formation, um, kind of possession-based, but also counterattack as we go. I want us to be able to get the ball forward, break lines, and that's where Michael Bradley comes into. I think Michael Bradley does an amazing job of keeping the ball, but also being able to break lines through the midfield to get the ball to the forwards. And with Vela up there, Vela's beat such a versatile. He can play as a holding forward with the ball at his feet coming in as a false nine, but then he can also be played through and be played into the attack. And he's a great finisher as well as the MLS has noticed in the past couple of years that he's been in here in the league. Um, some reasons why I picked Vegas was because um, of the population there. The population's 2 million within their urban population. Um, they have a sound um, type of backing already for soccer. They have the Las Vegas Lights right now, um, who's aver- who came into the USL in 2018 and immediately ranked six within attendance at seventeen at seven thousand two hundred sixty six average. This past year, they ranked fifth with an average of seven thousand seven hundred eleven. Um, so a big increase that from their first year, but also to rank that high in their very first year as a USL team is pretty impressive. Um, and Vegas is just such an, an appealing city for a professional team or sports in general. This Gambling, which you can do live games, gambling within Vegas is a huge hit. But also, it's not just me who thinks it's a big hit, but also it's being noticed by commissioners of other leagues. With Roger Goodell currently moving the Raiders to Vegas, um, Rob Manfred, the MLB commissioner, was quoted saying Las Vegas would be on the list if relocating a team within the MLB ever comes up. And then Mark Tatum and NBA, the NBA deputy commish quoted saying Las Vegas is a fantastic market. It's a market that given the success of our summer league, people here are avid sports fans and there's community that I have no doubt will support professional sports franchises here. So it's a huge kind of um, building place where I think a professional team can thrive and continuously thrive within. So within that four three three, Michael Bradley would be your midfield if it's holding yeah, a little he would bit. Be yeah, more of a six than an eight. Okay. Do you think so? Michael Bradley's getting a little bit older. Do you think that's a move that he would be keen to do? Um, I with that lifestyle and what have you. I. That's tough. I think. I think the opportunity might appease him because he's he's won with Toronto already. Um, he's been in Europe. I think a new, like, kind of like what we talked about in a couple episodes ago when we talked about the MLS being more of an import league. It's appeasing the new challenge 
to somebody. I think a new challenge within Vegas, and if we can get the right players around him, it could um, be more appeasing to him. I really like his leadership style to his traits within the leadership. So that would be huge when it comes to working with younger players and kind of helping build this new team or franchise. Yeah, that's a good point. I tried to take that into account when selecting my players, but some other things overweigh <laughs> that. <laughs> All right, yeah, Las Vegas is a good city. I, I think that would be – I've never been there, but I think that would be – it's going to be a great sports city for the for the Raiders and any other team that decides to go there. I think that's going to be the next big front, sports frontier in America. I think that's, that's a good one to come. Also – Shout out the Las Vegas Lights. Um, they actually, this is a fun fact, they have their two llamas that come to the games and take pictures with fans. Oh. The fans pet them and stuff. They're actually Dolly and Divey, so that's pretty sweet. I was pretty impressed. I was pretty surprised, and that kind of, was kind of exciting to see. Oh, llamas. Llamas. All right. <laughs> All right, so... All right, what you got, man? In Hawaii, I have to pick Honolulu. So, uh, it has to be. So, they were coming. So, their first professional soccer team was uh, back in 1977, and that was the only year they played. And uh, and they were in the NASL. So, but, so, and then right now, there's uh, okay. two, two uh, like, American soccer players that are, like, pretty decent names. Bobby Wood and Brian Ching. Bobby Wood's from Haleiwa, which is North Shore. And then Brian Ching is uh, from uh, Honolulu. He was they're both both born in Hawaii. So, and okay, the why, look at uh, you, Poopus. Go ahead. Why Bobby Wood didn't stay in Hawaii? Because his mom knew he would like be really good in soccer. But they moved. They ended up moving to Irving, California, because she knew that he would have a better chance for his soccer career. So, and that's why they moved there. Because there's no, there's not really a system here in Hawaii. There's a lot of youth leagues here. But it's not really a system where people can come look at locals and islanders from here to actually move up in the system. So I feel like that's why I feel like moving a team here to Honolulu would be great because it would actually give kids to you know look forward to having an academy team or actually work on their skills and techniques to actually move them up in the system. So and plus, I mean, Hawaii already averages five point I think it's five point seven million uh, tourists a year. So, and then that's from all around the world. And people from all around the world, it's, I mean, soccer's bigger than different countries and stuff. So I feel like that would bring in a lot of money. Because back in 2018 and 2019, that was the first uh, first time uh, I actually brought uh, professional soccer back in uh, Hawaii. So they had a, it was called Pacific Rim Cup. And it was Columbus, Vancouver, and they had a mm-hmm. A-League side. Uh, Nagasaki that came in and played and for a two-day tournament, they averaged 12,000 people and it brought in 1.7 million in revenue in 2018 and then 2019 a million. So obviously soccer, soccer would be really big here and people would actually go watch. So, I mean, that's, that's how I feel about having a, like a team in Honolulu. I think it would be really good. And then like Dakota did, I picked Michael Bradley to be one of my top players. Cause I'm just like Dakota said, like his leadership skills, like there's a reason why he's he was captain of the U.S. national team for a couple, for a few times, and then he's uh, he's been captain for Toronto. So his leadership skills obviously they take an effect to other players, and then like his ball skills on the field, like he can switch the ball like super well, and his vision's like super like really good too. So he has the right vision to play on the field at, at the midfield level, and he can he can pretty much change change the game the way he so I feel like he's a he's a good player for that. And then I don't know, I wrote down a bunch of players for for my second one. I really don't have one, but I'd say I guess I'd say Jordan Morris. So that's that's my second player. Kubis, do you have any concerns about travel between the you know, the teams that are on the eastern coast, so the DC yeah, United, I mean, like, Philadelphia yeah. Union, I uh, New that. England Revolution yeah, I mean, traveling. Like, changing time. So, like, I mean, we're six hours behind here right now because of time change. But I feel like uh, that'd be a big impact on, like, their, mm-hmm. I don't know, like, their uh, stamina and, like, their, their level on the field. It might take effect on them on the field, such for the time change and everything. But, I mean, I guess 
some, I mean, some people might be used to it for, you know, playing in the league for a lot longer than some others. So I might, it, it might affect them like some certain way. Yeah. And I feel like the way of living and the cost of living in Hawaii well, is a little bit different. That, so I think, like, yeah. So I don't know if players would be less willing to go there or what have you, but, um, I just feel like there would be a lot more consideration they would have to take yeah, I mean, to go like, to a team in Hawaii. Like, it would help the economy, too, around here, because maybe you would, like, kind of overpriced it around here, because, I mean, Hawaii's always been expensive, but it definitely help out the economy around here, so. Yeah, I think another thing. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Blake. Yeah, no, I to go ahead, Dakota. You really have to think about is, like, how feasible it is to get away fans there as well. Um when it came to that, mm-hmm. I know you mentioned that cup that the teams yeah. played in. It's easy to um, kind of tell yourself or get yourself to pay for a plane ticket and a hotel if you're down there for a week or so for that whole tournament. But if you're only going for a weekend, is it really feasible? Can I really talk myself into paying hundreds and dollars, hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a ticket and everything else? like the cost of living there, the cost of tourism there, is it really worth away fans going? Like how many away fans do you actually get into that stadium or something? Yeah, I agree, I agree with that. Because, I mean, that's why I mean that's why Bobby Wood's mom took him out of this out of this state because she knew that there was no chance for him to, you know, become a big soccer player around here. So, Yeah, unfortunately, it might not be a great soccer market. It might be something that, you know, I know University of Hawaii football has been something that Hawaii really cherishes. Um, So it could be something that, you know, if there was a USL team that was going to pop up in Hawaii, that they should talk to the University of Hawaii and see how they market their football team. And, you know, just kind of talk to them about what are the expectations? How do we get people in the stands? Um, as well as talking to other USL teams as well. But um, I don't foresee a, a a Hawaii team popping up in the MLS. But Poopus, I know you live in Hawaii, yeah, so I would love really no to be watch I mean, MLS live. Really here is, I kinda, it's not really pro, but it's women's Hawaii uh, university team. That's really the only – because the men's team, they don't have a men's team. so That's probably Title Nine. But, I mean, I, w- I would love to see a few here, though. That's that's for sure. Okay. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of places I would love to see a team. I'd love to see a team in Virginia Beach, but that's that's not the city I selected. I selected New Mexico. They currently have a USL team there, New Mexico United. I selected them because they already have a huge fan base, and that's one of the hardest things to come by for newcoming teams. You know, we've, we've interviewed Inter-Miami and Nordeca. We kind of talked to them about what is needed for a grassroots movement for soccer. And, you know, New Mexico United was founded in 20, I think, 2018, and their first season was last year, 2019. And they had, on average, 12,693 people in the stadium. Okay, their highest their highest attendance during the year was fifteen thousand two hundred and forty seven for a first year team. That's crazy. That's higher. So their average attendance at their stadium is higher than the Chicago Fire's average attendance in twenty nineteen. Chicago Fire averaged twelve thousand three hundred twenty four fans at a home game. Um, New Mexico United averaged twelve hundred six hundred ninety three. So. Chicago was the bottom of that list, but the fact that a USL championship team that just started a year before that has more fans than they do, that says something to me. The only downfall about that is they don't have their own soccer-specific stadium, although they just got, uh, they just got granted $4 million uh, from their local government to see here. that. So they just got $4 million for the team to come up with design and acquire land. So they hope to have this. They hope to start building the stadium sometime around this year or around this time next year and have the stadium built by the summer of next year. So currently they're playing in a baseball stadium, the, uh, 
the AAA baseball stadium that's in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, it's the Albuquerque Isotopes. The stadium is called Rio Grande Credit Union Field at Isotopes Park. So both the, the Isotopes and New Mexico United, uh, they're both tenants there. They both play their respective sports there. And obviously, New Mexico has to shape their schedule around what the Isotopes have their schedule as. Uh, but their attendance is absolutely incredible. And they basically fill up a AAA baseball stadium. So we've, I mean, we've seen you MLS teams playing a baseball stadium like New York City FC still does. Um, so, you know, they're making it happen. They're selling, they're selling the stadiums out. They have the number one attendance, uh, attendance rate in the USL championship. So I, I think that's huge. And the MLS is all about money. Poopas, you're, you've said it in a couple of different episodes. They're a business. They are going. They're going to look – so not only are they going to look for the people that – or not only are they going to look for the teams that have the most fans attending games, they're also going to look for the markets that are watching um, on television these games. So I didn't get those statistics, but that could be something that they work on. They may have high attendance statistics, but they may need more people turning into TV. I'm not sure what their TV deal is like, but I'm sure if they become an LS team, they would get a more profitable TV deal and they could get those viewers that way. But anyways, so first and foremost, I'll give you guys my formation that I'm picking. I'm picking a 3-5-2. It's a little unconventional, so I'm going to have three, three, uh, yeah, three center backs, two wing backs. You can flip-flop it. You can have one defensive mid and two attacking mids, or you could have two defensive mids and one attacking mid. Um, for me, the way that I have it, I was at work today, and I drew out on a sticky note what I wanted it to be. I wanted two defensive mids and an attacking mid, so I'd have a a, um, a triangle up front, two forwards and an attacking mid behind them. So I think the advantages to that is in defense, it allows you know when a team is in your attacking third, it allows your team to simply drop into a back four, or a back five, whenever necessary, because those two wing backs, they they. They're basically wingers, but they don't play super high up the field. They're responsible for going up and down those channels, either the right or left channel. So if the other team has the ball, they're dropped in deep. If need be, they could drop into four or five in the back. Uh, you know, the wing backs, they work in a triangle with the center back and the center midfielder. So there's that constant shape. There's constant triangles within either the midfield or the defense. And it's a, it's a, transi- it's a transition. It's a numbers game as well. Uh, with our – with our wing backs dropping in deep, it it invites opposing teams to bring their outside backs up the field, which then leads them to being exposed in transition. Uh, but like I said earlier in the text, you know, um, formations are constantly transitioning and evolving and changing throughout a game. So we may start out in a three-five-two, but quickly when we're on defense, it may start. It may move into a a five-three-two. You know, um, so whether you're on defense, it's a five-three-two, and then when we switch to offense, it's a three-five-two. So it's a complete numbers game in this system. You have to have wing backs that are willing and able to run up and down the right and left channels, able to play both stout defense when necessary, and able to provide service from the right or left side, or pre or able to provide an attacking presence uh, up and, up and down the right and left channel. And it also creates a numbers game in the midfield. Uh, it, you know, with, with the four three three, even with the four three three, we kind of playing against the four three three in that matter. It overpowers that midfield. There's more players in that small amount of space, and if you have a good center back that can even step up, if you're only playing against one center forward, a center back can then step up at that point. Um, and even if you do get countered, you have three backs back to ensure that you don't you know, concede a goal. So whether you're playing against one or two strikers, you have three players back. So hopefully your midfielders can track and, you know, you're in this, in this formation, you have to be very disciplined. So if one of your, either your right back or left outside or your right wing back, your left wing back goes forward, uh, your center defensive mid needs to be a little bit disciplined and see that that guy's gone up and they need to kind of slide back and fill into that role a little bit. They don't necessarily need to slide back into that right, right wing back role or left wing back role but they need to hang back a little bit to provide coverage for that player in case of a turnover and going the other way. 
So for me, the two positions that I prioritized were an outside wing back and also an attacking midfielder. So I texted you guys earlier and I was having a really, really, really hard time about this. But one player I prioritized was a right wing back. I could have prioritized a left wing back, but I picked a right wing back instead. I picked Reggie Cannon of FC Dallas, 21-year-old homegrown player. Uh, he's a trusty one-on-one -one -one defender. Uh, he really put his attacking and crossing ability on display in the 2019 Gold Cup. Uh, he has a motor that doesn't stop. He's really young. With him being really young, uh, he seems like he's very coachable. And from the interviews I saw, he's also very disciplined. Um, with a right wing back or a left wing back, also if the ball's on the opposite side of the field, they need to provide those late runs into the box um, to close out the play and to clean up any garbage that's, that's back there. Uh, so I got Reggie Cannon as one of my players that I would bring into my team, and then also Nicholas Ladero. So Nico Ladero in 2019, he had 96.16 touches per 90 minutes in the 2019 season. So that's over a touch a minute. Uh, so that's he's super involved in the game. So with this, with this three-five-two formation, I'm looking for our team. If we do drop back into what looks like a five-three-two, if we get the ball back, to quickly transition, and he is our transition piece. That's why I picked him up. Uh, so the last three years, he had double-digit assists. In 2019, he had seven goals, 12 assists. 2016, he was the 2016 MLS Newcomer of the Year and he's won two MLS Cups. He's got the vision. He's able to spring a counterattack. He can, can, he can contribute both in the wide channels and in the middle of the field, and he can create for himself and the teammates and his teammates. So obviously there's a lot of other pieces I could build around that, but I have both Reggie Cannon and Nico Ladero as my, as my two players I build my team around. Yeah, so, yep. Also, also we would wear yellow and black. <laughs> cool. So, Blake, I got a question. How do you so, think – do you think they would be able to sustain their attendance record with a city in a city like Albuquerque, which they're currently in, or do you think it was just a first-year hype thing? No, I think they could at least sustain it. Um, you know, like I said, the average is 12,693. I think with that being the first year, yeah, it's, you know, there's always a honeymoon phase, but, and that was with a team that finished 10th within their conference in the USL championship and bowed out in like a, a play-in game. But I think the longer they go, Albuquerque is a relatively big city. I don't have the, you know, the population statistics in front of me or what have you, but the fact that the city has already, allocated $4 million for them to build a new stadium says something that the city is ready to buy into this. So yes, it might be high for the very first season, but I think things can grow from there. You know, the MLS likes teams that have, obviously they're not Atlanta and they're not in LA, but they're a small market team that really buys in. So I think well, that could be a new stadium. Too, that that could be a big a seller for that. Come in too. Since they're actually going to have a, a soccer stadium of their own. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why I looked into that. Uh, MLS prioritizes teams that have a, a soccer-specific stadium. And the fact that they're showing that they're already trying to get that says that they're trying to make that next step. So that's another reason why I selected this. Yeah, because when you think of Albuquerque, you don't really think of a booming city. And when you look at the MLS cities that teams are in, you really see – booming cities or up-and-coming cities, and Albuquerque just doesn't seem like one of those. No, I agree, but from what I've read, I mean, I think uh, New Mexico, I think it's New Mexico State University is there, the Lobos, whatever there's university that is State, there. There's New Mexico, uh, so they have the Aggies, the Lobos, they have a couple teams. They have a couple schools there. Yeah, whatever, whatever school has the uh, the Lobos, that's the I believe that's the university that's in Albuquerque, and I mean they're they're a relatively big school. They're a college town. They have to have a relatively big population. Um, so we'll see how it goes. the The mere fact that they have the number one um, attendance in the USL Championship in their first year it says a lot of big things. Uh, so we'll see where it grows. They were bigger than the you know than the 
the Las Vegas Lights in the first year. So, hey, you know, we'll see. Go ahead. All, you know, Las, Go ahead. Huh? Yeah, Las Vegas Lights. Las, the Las Vegas Lights have a lot more room to grow, obviously, just based on the, the name of the city itself. But, you know, the mere fact that a, a team out of Albuquerque had a higher attendance than a team in Las Vegas in the first year, that says something as well. I'm just going to say one thing because we're all from Columbus and we kind of went through that whole Columbus thing. Uh, I find it ironic. I was looking, so I was looking at the 2020, I was looking for the 2020 USL championship attendance um, to see if New Mexico played at home. They have not played at home just to see like what it was like this year with their first game and stuff. But I came across this, this, this stat. Um, so we all know how Austin is getting a team this year. Um, this coming year, in 2019, they only they averaged 2,395 fans a game. They only they only had 40 they only had 40,000 fans come into their stadium. And they're going to the MLS year. team this year. Yeah, and this year they had their first game they against New Mexico. They had 2,496. <laughs> Man, get out of here, Anthony. Anthony Precourt is a joke. They, so, so maybe the MLS, maybe the MLS, yeah, maybe they value money more than well, they value the, buy, the customer. When the cost to get a expansion team is six hundred million, yeah, it's nearly impossible to get an expansion team now. Well, those teams that we're trying to build right now are, you know, attempting to, oh, yeah. to get to that that point. So, so cool. That was a fun. That was a fun section, guys. I'm glad that we all got to you know, pick some players and, and do all that. That was fun. Guys, uh, along with doing our podcasts on, we do our podcast Wednesday nights, but we post them midday Thursday, and we appreciate you guys for listening. But we're also going to be doing our Periscope episodes yeah, wherever, and our Q&A sessions Sundays, on, what do we Sundays, say, Sundays? Fridays or Sundays, one of the two. I think this week we can do it on Friday just because Sunday is easier. All right, so we'll keep so. – Yeah, yeah, so you guys just tune in on our Twitter. It's MLS Gone Wild on Twitter. We just changed our Twitter handle, so, again, it's – MLS Gone Wild. We'll be doing live Periscope sessions where we just kind of uh, brainstorm ideas on what we're going to be talking about for the next week and taking any kind of questions that any of our fans have for us and just, you know, just hanging out, talking like bros. Uh, it's it's good to do when we're when I'm in Virginia, Poopus is in Hawaii, and Dakota's in you know, Memphis, Tennessee. So it's good every once in a while just Jordan, too, talk on camera and get to see everybody and talk and discuss what we're going to be talking about for the next week yeah please yeah please ask questions uh again we'll be on this friday on periscope it'll be linked straight to our twitter we will put up some polls this week based on our probably our, our head coach choices uh we'll put another cho- a couple choices as well and then we'll probably put up a poll on uh what players you would select to uh, start a expansion team with so we'll, we'll try to do both of those things on our twitter so please go ahead and follow us on twitter mls no wild and take uh just participate in those polls for us uh anyways this is blam we appreciate you guys listening we appreciate it i hope you guys enjoyed it y'all stay home stay safe yeah. stay healthy and Stay healthy. We'll see what we bring y'all next week. Y'all have a good one. Everybody have a great day. Yeah, you guys have.